Welcome to this week's episode of The Modern Good. I'm your host, Busy Gold. Conscious construction starts right now. When we look at where our society has gone over the last few years, but I would say that this has been happening since 2016. 2016 is when I first started talking about the direction that I saw society heading and how dangerous that could be in a variety of ways. One of the things that certainly has escalated along with some of the social changes we've all experienced is, of course, the elevation of victimhood. So almost, if you will, this idea that victimhood is put up on a pedestal is something that gets you some sort of clout or gets you some sort of pass on certain things societally or relationally that is to be strived for. And of course, this isn't messaged overtly. This is something that is something that can be operating beneath the surface as it typically is culturally through things like priming. So in break, we're always focused on input-output relationships. If we're thinking about how society will start to elevate and praise victimhood, what sort of output do we think would come from that? I want you to take a moment and chat me in what you think the output would be for elevating victimhood. Will we have more victims or more victors? Will there be victors anymore or will there only be predators, right? Will somebody only be the oppressor? Are people more likely to mislabel or lean into something to experience victimhood when if we were to hit that pause button and pull out, there might not actually be any true victim-predator scenario taking place? Someone says everyone is a victim. People are more loved for being a victim more predators. Absolutely everyone seeks to be the victim. I saw this at my son's college campus and I see it with clients. That's so true. Um, Jennifer says, lots of victims blaming others, not pausing to look at yourself. Absolutely. Allah says, only predators, true victims silenced, blame everyone. I think victims will lash out eventually and possibly become bullies. Absolutely. Richard says, same coin. Wait until you see how intuitive it was that you say same coin gives us an excuse not to try. Absolutely. All of these things are, of course, true. So what we end up seeing is that as victim culture gets put up on this pedestal, the masses become incentivized in some way socially to project, deflect, and find somebody that they are going to blame, right? If If you perceive that you get to be a part of an in-group because of your victim status, you are incentivized, therefore, to label people around you as somehow oppressive and therefore victimizing you. Unfortunately, this does happen typically through the mechanisms of projection and deflection. So psychological projection is a defense mechanism people subconsciously use to cope with difficult feelings or emotions. It is a psychological defense that involves projecting undesirable feelings or emotions onto someone else rather than admitting to or dealing with the unwanted feelings themselves. Wow. I mean, this happens a lot, does it not? And now, unfortunately, we're not allowed to draw attention to this. This is something that has actually, you get sanctioned socially right now for calling attention to this. Even it's like, hey, Maybe we want to just hit the pause button, see if there's some other perspectives here. Oh, microaggression. Well, can't we just run through that one more time and see if anyone can take radical personal responsibility? That sounds like your white privilege is talking. That's the world, unfortunately, that we're living in right now. If we simply, kindly, and even empathetically, conscientiously try to open up some of these conversations, we are becoming socially sanctioned. So, Let's take a look at deflection. Deflection means that you're passing something over to someone else in an attempt to draw the attention away from yourself. Wow, this also sounds like a tactic that is just prevalent throughout all of society right now. It is a psychological defense in which you deflect to blame others, ostensibly removing any personal responsibility. 
I genuinely feel like one of the biggest things our society is currently lacking is personal responsibility. What I hope to reveal to you throughout today's lecture is the formula is very simple. There was no way that with elevating victimhood status and making that something that gives you social clout, we weren't going to then in turn lean into psychological protection, projection and deflection. These things were always going to happen. When we look at how these things get programmed or um, primed into society, what we're looking at is this happening through media messaging, social media trends, marketing and advertising strategies. And these are all pushed to actually shift people away from radical personal responsibility. So instead of it being like, why don't I hit the pause button and look to see if maybe you're partially responsible for this, you're taught to immediately look for whatever the group is that society has decided is ultimately responsible for this problem. So it no longer even becomes personal or individual. You're actually taught who is to blame. So you get yourself into a situation and you've already been programmed or primed with a list of all the people that are ultimately responsible for the situation that you're in, never having anything to do with yourself. So Richard says, what's the key difference between projection and deflection? So deflection, imagine this as what you're saying is trying to form a distraction over here so everyone gets focused over here, whereas projection is you're actually saying that it is the other person doing the very thing that you're doing. So you're actually putting it onto them for psychological projection versus deflection is you're actually giving them something that might not be directly passing that which you're experiencing, but you're shifting the conversation to them, drawing it away from you. So one example could be, let's say that I'm feeling uh, that I'm being controlled and oppressed. I will look at somebody and essentially put that onto them most likely when the reality is that there's probably some element of me in that situation that is actually trying to control the situation. I don't like that somebody's not going along with what I'm saying. So I'll actually blame them for the very thing that I'm myself feeling. Deflection, instead of that, I could deflect by asking them or pointing out something in themselves that is actually the issue that's not the issue that I've just described. So for example, I would actually deflect by bringing up something from the past. Well, in the past, you cheated on me. So obviously this is your fault. That would be deflection rather than projection. So hopefully that explains it. Is psychological projection the same thing as gaslighting? Um, it's certainly something that could be experienced as gaslighting. And don't you worry, we're going into all of that today. So one thing we know for certain is that if we see victim culture and woundology and trauma bonding rising, the end result is going to be that we will inevitably start using the term narcissist all over society and be incentivized to call out all narcissists. I'll tell you right now, many of the people that you want to call a narcissist are simply not in agreement with you. Somebody not agreeing with you or not seeing things the way you see them does not mean that they are themselves a narcissist. One of the things that I want to make very clear as we dig into this content today is that if you've ever listened to any of the small group recordings when we used to do small groups, you I'm sure can get a little taste of what we get on our one-on-one -on -one calls. People have experienced some heinous physical, emotional, and sexual traumas. My issue is that when we trend in the direction that we have been, you end up creating a social scenario like the boy who cried wolf, where now it's very hard to tell who the actual victims are. That is a dangerous place to be. And in fact, many of the people that are actual victims are not acting out of this very programmed or primed way to express victimhood, therefore often getting swept under the rug and completely ignored by the people that actually should be serving them. So another way to look at this would be in today's society, there are certain 
we'll say social issues. I'm not going to go too much into them, but there are certain social issues, which if you find yourself entangled in some of those social issues and you've gotten yourself into some sort of confusion, you're more likely to quickly get the help you need, even though is it actually the help you need? Likely not. But you're more likely to have people that are in a caregiving position reach out, throw you a lifeline, let me help you. Meanwhile, the kids that are getting physically or sexually abused at school, they're likely putting on their happy face and the caregivers that should have been programmed to watch those people and notice the fine warning signs are now so distracted with some of these other kids that are dealing with these socially programmed issues that now I firmly believe more abuse is getting overlooked than ever before because we're distracted. I genuinely believe this is actually intentional, but I'll leave that to to you to decide moving into future content. So the boy who cried wolf is obviously a scenario or story that most of us hear in childhood. And my son saw me working on this yesterday. He's like, mommy, how come everybody knows the boy who cried wolf? And I'm like, well, because it's a really important story. If you call out a victim, if you call out victimhood, I should say, multiple times, and you try to say that person's a predator or that person's oppressing me, and you do that so many times without it actually being true, eventually when you are in real trouble, you've desensitized everyone outside of you. would be like, well, well, it's probably nothing. So we want to make sure that we're not desensitizing society to kids and people at large that are actually experiencing true predatory oppressive relationships that need our help as people in the caregiving profession. So we need to make sure that we are aware of how this functions and that it is unfortunately likely to take away the ability for true caregivers to notice and help those who actually need help because they're distracted with the groups that society has deemed most in need at this moment. So that's the implication and I don't believe that many of the people that we see in break method feel that this is okay and I, I don't think that many people have actually seen it in this context before. So let's dissect a bit of the macro problem, right? So macro is the big rather than micro, which is me and my me and myself or me and my smaller group. So the macro problem is that we now have a society of trauma bonding. And this has happened across all sectors and areas of life, but certainly is happening in mental health sectors. We also are seeing a Me Too style victimhood go up. Therefore, we also will see perceived narcissism go up. And I want to make sure that we're really taking notice of that word perceived narcissism, because this is something that we're going to be unpacking quite a bit today. And then, of course, taking a look at if people are leaning into victimhood and they're prioritized to blame first rather than take personal responsibility, they'll always be needing and looking for somebody to blame. Because once you think about a little kid, once you get away with this a few times, you actually lose the ability to stop and self-reflect you realize that you're actually getting a positive reinforcement by blaming and getting away with it. Therefore, you don't ever have to stop and take radical personal responsibility to change the way life is trending for you. So this uh, URL will take you to an article that I think is pretty, pretty fair. I would say it's skewed in a direction that I am not really 100% on board with, but I like to give you alternative perspectives. So if you're kind of on the fence about this, this is definitely a, a, a fair take on it, to say the least. So we can see that all of the things we've just described in the macro level problem are what create cancel culture. So cancel culture is when you are primed or programmed to call out, cut out toxic people, use essentially mob mentality to exert peer pressure. So I would refer to this as social peer pressure meaning it doesn't have to be somebody that is your peer group by age. It's somebody that has to be perceived in your peer group as part of society at large. And obviously, we also have social media trends certainly impacting and escalating cancel culture. Let's take a look at actually defining narcissism. And if you have looked at the toxic relationships and gaslighting lecture, which I believe is either 
coming up next or you've just recently had it but i think it's coming up next we'll dive much more into narcissistic relationships and of course gaslighting so narcissistic personality disorder is a mental condition in which people have an inflated sense of their own importance, a deep need for excessive attention and admiration, troubled relationships, and a lack of empathy for others. This is often coupled with a lack of grounded confidence and a fragile sense of self-esteem. A narcissistic personality disorder causes problems in many areas of life, such as relationships, work, school, or financial affairs. They may find their relationships unfulfilling and others may not enjoy being around them. Has anyone ever met a person that fits this bill? Probably. But guess what we know from break method? Is our opinion or our experience of somebody ultimate truth? Or are we also seeing it through our own skewed or distorted perceptions? I truly believe, just as you've heard me say multiple times throughout all the timeline diagnostics, most of the labels that we put on people in society and try to teach people how to understand are ultimately doing that person and the people around them a disservice. If we were to look at each piece of what's contributing to that label and try to oppose each piece of that pattern that is being labeled as such, we would have far better results than to just say, oh, well, these five pieces together equal this. And if you're this, then you just have to deal with it, cope with it, and accept that this is your reality. This is unfortunately what ends up happening. When you get into unit four, you'll have access to my lecture Unwinding the ADHD Brain. I certainly believe this is true with many, not all, many diagnoses of ADHD. So we get ourselves into the situation where we've decided, oh, well, this is what schizophrenia is. This is what the trajectory of schizophrenia is. Therefore, you become a self-fulfilling prophecy. We see this with borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder. All of these issues, really, if we pull back and look at it from a break perspective, have a very specific timeline diagnostic tied to them. They've got a source belief pattern tied to them. And honestly, the way that you would treat one person with schizophrenia is very different than you would treat another person with schizophrenia based on all of those more granular pieces of their pattern. And we know from break that opposing each part of that granular pattern down to the level of thought process, behavior, communication style, that's ultimately what makes the person change. What makes the person change is not necessarily going to be tied to giving them a label and saying, this is what we most likely would expect from you. If we look at where we've gone to in society with elevating victim culture, it makes sense that we would be so focused on labels because the labels come with these other characteristics. And as soon as we take on that label, it somehow makes all these other characteristics that we have socially acceptable. Oh, well, I've got bipolar disorder. Therefore, all the things in this bubble you can just expect from me, right? If I have bipolar disorder, then I can't change any of these things. They just are. It's part of who I am. I have a chemical imbalance. Okay. That's really disempowering. What about, well, I can't change any of these things because I have major depression. We know from a break perspective that so many of these small decisions, small thought processes that we allow will exponentially over time turn into something like major depressive disorder. But if you assume that label and you start allowing all the things that go with that label to somehow excuse you from having to do the work on these small pieces of pattern opposition, are we ever going to change? No, we're not. We're going to keep elevating victim culture so that we don't have to be alone in our pain. Oh, well, I've got bipolar disorder. I've got major depressive disorder. I've got major anxiety. Everyone needs to have now some sort of label so that their label can somehow blanket all these ways that they express themselves or that they feel, and it ends up allowing them some level of excuse from society. Richard is saying, mind prison, when the doctor told me I had depression at university and needed meds, even though I was in it deep, I walked away for these reasons. Dead end. So certainly I'm not saying that medication doesn't ever work. And I know for some people, medication has been a great stopgap and can certainly have its place in this industry. I am encouraging us from more of a sociological perspective right now to look at what the trajectory of this is long term. If we keep focusing on victim culture and we keep encouraging either 
covertly or overtly people to latch onto these labels and then trauma bond in their labeling, we are as a society going to move further and further away from being healed and collaborative. And we will certainly move ourselves into a place where we basically keep doubling down on what we're doing now, which we're seeing all types of mental health labels on the rise. We're seeing suicide rise, drug addiction rise. Everything is on the rise. We're not trending down on anything and certainly COVID did not help. So we do know that narcissist and victim childhood wounds are likely part of the mix here. So we want to remember that many of us were potentially parented by true narcissists, right? We might have experienced a parent get actually truly victimized and abused by another parent, right? We might have actually truly experienced all of these things. Now, I want to draw a very clear defining line that there are true narcissists and then there are perceived narcissists. There are also true victims and then there are also those that are perceiving they're being victimized. Certainly, you can take a beat and call on somebody that comes to you. Maybe it's a friend and they're like, oh my God, can you believe that that person did this to me? And they're running through this whole thing and you're sitting there knowing the whole story, knowing the other person and in your head, you're like, I don't think you're really victimized. You're partially to blame here too, which is what brings us ultimately back to this idea of symbiotic dysfunction. There's always two pieces to this. There isn't ever just one person driving the crazy train. Now, this isn't to take away from people who are actually in an abusive relationship because people do frequently and often repetitively get into abusive relationships. So when I have somebody that comes through my office with a pattern of abusive relationships, it's usually the majority. It's not like they had one outlier relationship that went into physical abuse. Typically, it's most of their relationships trend toward physical abuse. There are a variety of issues that could be responsible for this. I do unpack some of them in toxic relationships and gaslighting. I do use an analogy that I think might help us kind of frame this up in their head. So the actual term for it is pouncing. I refer to this is if you show up to something smelling like bacon, somebody will get pushed into their predatory instinct and decide that they really like the taste of bacon and they want to eat you. This is why people that typically have had a pattern of sexual abuse, it continues on because they likely have a few mechanisms at play. Number one, their brain is no longer capable of recognizing true red flags. In fact, their brain, especially if there's an early childhood pattern of sexual abuse, their brain actually feels safe around people that are in fact full of red flags. Therefore, they keep associating with the very people that would be predatorial and they keep showing up assuming that pattern of predatory prey, therefore push themselves into showing up like bacon and it actually in many cases will push somebody into their predatory instinct. This is called pouncing. If you look at it in the animal kingdom, for example, if some little cute little animal is like, oh, a big animal is gonna be like, wow, you are just low hanging fruit here. I am absolutely going to eat you. Boom, pounce, eat. When we look at patterns of this sort of narcissist victim, true narcissist victim wound pattern, this is more what's responsible for true narcissist victim cycles. Typically, it's something that was modeled to the child and they start this pattern up in teen years. So for example, having a, a teen boyfriend that is sexually forceful or potentially even abusive at that point, or does not abide by any of your boundaries whatsoever. And then of course, this can also be true in the reverse for male-female relationships. So certainly I'm not saying that narcissists have to be male. Narcissists can absolutely and often are also female. But typically the trajectory here is we're looking at, it was experienced and modeled as a child. And this pattern kicks up almost instantaneously when dating begins. It's not something that typically catches you off guard later on. I have a lot of clients that lately in the last couple of years, they're like, I was watching this 
this YouTube tutorial and now I'm I'm certain that my husband is narcissistic. I'm like, oh, oh, you're certain of that. It has nothing to do with the YouTube tutorial. It has nothing to do with the extensive reels on how to spot a narcissist. This is all just 100% true. I think a lot of people are being misled and trapped into, again, labeling these situations because they watched a social media video or because they watched some sort of talk on YouTube. We want to be really mindful of not allowing somebody else's very well-articulated labeling that is certainly tied to this victim culture, that is certainly tied to cancel culture, me too, and so on, to become a part of your everyday life. You've got to be very careful because I've watched this actually ruin relationships that are absolutely worth salvaging. It's our belief at break that obviously we're going to strike off the table. If somebody is being physically abusive, this is absolutely unacceptable and you need to keep yourself safe and get help right away. Now, aside from that, we truly believe in break that most relationships are capable of being completely transformed, even something that you are perceiving as incredibly toxic. If we can understand the cycle of toxicity, the role that you play in the toxicity, and yes, you still play a role even if you think that other person is ultimately responsible, if both parties can see how this cycle got created, what's contributing to it, and they can both learn how to oppose these patterns, you can change even the most toxic relationship. I've seen it time and time again. And I'll tell you what doesn't help. Looking for a YouTube video to validate how you're feeling so that you can call the other person a narcissist. In many cases, this is putting you into that ex that label of you're perceiving that they're a narcissist rather than they actually truly are. And in this way, you might be perceiving that you're victimized when really you're also partially responsible. So in always the narcissist and the victim are part of one coin and often both parties feel the same about the other one so if both parties feel the same about the other one who's telling the truth i feel like this goes right back to one of our first lectures when we talk about the red glasses and the blue glasses this is this is a duality right if somebody is being selfish and i'm being victimized by you and therefore you're a narcissist and i'm being victimized the other person can feel the same way about what you just said and often does. I work with these clients all the time, especially in husband-wife relationships. And I'll tell you right now, what's almost always exclusively happening when two people are saying, no, you're the narcissist, and they're both saying the same exact thing about the other one, is that both people have a control mechanism in their adaptive source belief pattern. It's almost exclusively the case. So let's take a look at what happens on the other side of perceived narcissism. So the experience of the perceived narcissist. So this is the person that is being perceived that they are a narcissist. Usually what's happening is that their energetic giving and receiving, which is one of those personality traits that we've discussed on your personality triangle, there's something about it that's per being perceived as selfish. They likely have issues voicing needs, feelings, and boundaries. There's some sort of symbiotic dysfunction at play, and certainly all of this is influencing their communication style. So narcissist Eli question. So if you ever get blamed for being a narcissist and you disagree, these are some great questions to ask yourself to see if it's possibly something that you're doing that's creating the appearance of narcissism when that's not actually what the mechanism or thought process is in your head. Am I pushing people away and hyper-focusing on work, success, and, produ and productivity to make myself feel in control or safe? Am I avoiding vulnerability and connection because I don't trust other people? Do I take away other people's opportunities to show up for me even if they want to because it feels safer to do it myself, right? Hyper-self-reliance. Instead of seeking feedback from others to build my confidence, do I boost myself up in a way that can be perceived as boastful or rude? Do I quickly write off people who seem to be illogical or over-emotional to keep myself safe? Does this make them feel I'm being dismissive or rejecting? Quite literally, if most people that were labeled a narcissist simply ran themselves through these checkpoint questions and took break, don't really think we'd have a problem anymore with most, not all. 
So let's take a second to spotlight conscious communication. Another way that this can be labeled sometimes is nonviolent communication, new agey communication. So to me, for most people, this is actually the ultimate trigger and there's no ability to co-reconcile reality. And that is the exact opposite of break method. So with break method, our goal is to understand our own skewed perception of reality, our own distortions, and to understand how we are potentially mislabeling them, how we can actually see who they are and how to communicate to them in a way that gets us into collaboration. So with break, we're always trying to get on the same page and collaborate and not go into our immediate assumptions about what has always happened in the past. We're allowing the situation to become brand new and become collaborative. When we talk about things like conscious communication or nonviolent communication, Unfortunately, this is a major trigger because you're not actually trying to co-reconcile reality. You're saying your black arrow over there makes me feel in my white arrow X and I don't like it when your black arrow does this. How do you feel about that? And they're like, well, I feel that your white arrow is oppressive to me and I think that X, Y, Z should happen. All you're doing is actually highlighting how that other person's arrow made you feel. And then often you're pairing that with reframing it is I think I'm hearing you say that your white arrow is making me feel this way. Do you see how all you're doing is actually describing what's happening on your side of the line? And you're describing what's happening on your side of the line as tied to something their arrow has done to you. This will be and always is the ultimate trigger for many people. So this communication style won't work for most people. And I don't genuinely understand why it's pushed so much. Maybe the only reason is because it fits perfectly with all of these other things like elevating victimhood, cancel culture and beyond. What we should be doing is how can I take radical personal responsibility for the fact that we are right now, we are not on the same page. We have a line in between us. What is what is my goal to get us to live life without a line? And then what about you? What's your goal to get us to live life without a line? Rather than continually highlighting how I'm seeing things differently than you. Why aren't we focusing on what things we can collaborate and have in common and lead with radical personal responsibility? So do you see how break method communication is quite literally the antithesis of conscious communication or nonviolent communication. Sweet. So what is on the other side of being the perceived victim? So same thing, plot twist, energetic giving and receiving, right? How they're experiencing and sharing love or having their needs met, voicing needs, feelings, and boundaries, right? Some people are able to do that really directly and some people dance around it. Some people expect other people to just know their needs without voicing them. Sympathetic dysfunction, communication style. So, wow, same, same. Both people are having the same issue. But guess what questions are gonna help this victim pop out of, of their cycle? This page right here. Am I responding to or perceiving this through my childhood lens? Am I feeling hurt, left out, or ignored and letting my protective response push me into projection or deflection? Do I tend to deflect responsibility or place blame to take the responsibility off myself? Did I actually follow the directions and set a clear expectation or hear the feedback objectively? I'm telling you right now, that one question would change the world if people started asking themselves that. Am I taking something personally that isn't intended to be? Am I addicted to the experience of injustice and seeing this experience through a highly subjective lens? Those questions would all change the world. So let's take a look at what the most common matchups to be perceiving a narcissistic relationship. So to go into this one, there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence out there that often narcissistic tending people and borderline tending people tend to end up in relationship with each other. I have a whole theory on borderline versus mirroring borderline, but we'll keep that for another lecture or possibly you've already heard me talk about it briefly in timeline diagnostics and psychological patterns. This is the most common pattern, certainly. So 
Most commonly, the person that might be labeled as the borderline or be exhibiting signs like the borderline would be rejection, control to be safe and loved. They certainly could also be abandoned, control to be safe, but most commonly, it will be rejection, control to be safe and loved. And then the narcissist will most often be abandoned, control to be safe, but they could also be rejection, control to be safe and loved. So what we know from symbiotic dysfunction is that in a relationship duo, almost exclusively will have one person with abandoned control to be safe and then the other person would be rejection control to be safe and loved. You almost never have two abandoned control to be safe together in a relationship. Can someone be both what? So symbiotic dysfunction won't occur because the duality and the polarity will be off if both people have the same exact pattern. They will repel each other in quite literally now 4,000 and some odd number cases. I've never seen a partnership with both the same pattern. So we can have, again, the abandoned control to be safe with the rejection control to be safe, and they might seem in some ways similar, but their way of labeling the world and any given situation is different. Abandonment is going to be very much you people out there are a risk or a danger to me and I have to figure out how to keep the situation controlled and safe. And the rejection oriented person is always going to start from a self-centered perspective. So it will always be what other people are going to do to me. An abandonment person is what is going to happen with all of you people out there that is going to put the general situation at risk. Brune says borderline and narcissist. Can a person have BPD and be a narcissist? I'm sure that it's possible, but I would say that I've never run into it. And technically, borderline personality disorder can present with narcissistic tendencies and often does. So in my experience, and obviously I am not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, my experience is that what can happen is that you, the person that is exhibiting these characteristics often has a more narcissistic parent and then another parent that's more borderline tending. So potentially that person is exhibiting adaptive responses of both parents. Um, I will certainly lead you to maybe do some more research on that, but I've never personally seen it, and it's my general belief that these labels are not incredibly effective because in break specifically, I've had multiple people that have true diagnosed borderline, like come to break with diagnosed borderline, and throughout their work, and I'll, I'll go back, diagnosed borderline, and what is very important is that they resent the label. They still don't feel it's accurate. They're mad about it. So I'm not a borderline. Once they actually get through their work and break, usually about the end of unit two, they come to me crying and they're like, oh my God, I see it. I can actually see it. That to me is the sign of somebody that's been truly diagnosed correctly, where they were in complete denial and rejection of the label. And then they actually have this moment of coming face to face with it on their paperwork. And feel actual remorse and personal responsibility. Like, holy beep, I actually, I'm partially responsible for this. This is real. So in break, I've seen huge success with people coming face to face with the behavior that's associated with why they got the diagnosis, even if previously they just felt the psychiatrist was trying to pull one over on them. Often this ends up happening when we get people here that went through a divorce and maybe the divorce turned nasty and the other parent forced them to get a psyche valve. A lot of the times we'll get people with diagnosed borderline from a psyche valve for a custody hearing. And they're, very, like I said, very much in rejection of the label itself. Now, I want to be very clear here. My belief is that these labels are not what we should be striving for. We should be striving for understanding all of the granular thought processes, behavior patterns, and communication cycles that are actually being labeled as these things on the outside. So whether it's borderline or narcissist, and I specifically called those two out because there's a lot of literature about these relationships that tend to spring up with a borderline and a narcissist, and there's literally tons of books out there. And again, I urge you, while you're, if you decide to go down that road and read those, 
don't necessarily take those and then try to project that sort of architecture onto any of your relationships. I believe you're way better served for actually seeing your relationship through the lens of radical personal responsibility and believing that all human beings are capable of change. I certainly do. I've seen some people change and break that when they first started were some of my least favorite people to talk to, to deal with, and by the end of by the end of the semester, genuinely some of my favorite human beings. So I know that people, regardless of a diagnosis, can completely change the direction of their life. They can change their thought processes. They can change how they're communicating. I've seen it far too many times now to not believe it's possible. So when we look at things like this, all we're looking at is when somebody has been actually given the diagnosis of narcissist and there, we also have a borderline counterpart, which might be the case if you're going back and looking at your parents, if you know that there have been diagnoses thrown around, this is usually the matchup that we see. So how do we get people to break out of this toxic cycle and why is it being perpetuated instead of stopped? Woof. The $5 billion question. Um, Heather says, the whole push for victim mentality blows my mind. My father is an actual narcissist and I have a strong aversion to the word victim. And in fact, to this day, I will make excuses for him and normalize my childhood and say it wasn't that bad. Now looking at it through break, it was definitely not normal. It just seems crazy to me that anyone would want to be a victim and then talk about it. Well, I feel like what you're saying really echoes what I said in the beginning, which is, unfortunately, many of the people that were actually truly victimized, their way of dealing with it, their adaptation is to kind of like skirt that. They don't want that label. They actually go into some sort of hyper-independence and everyone believes that they're fine. This is why I'm saying that elevating this culture the way we are is making it even harder to spot the people that have been victimized because it's always been hard to spot those who are victimized because they genuinely do create some sort of protective mechanism that makes them appear a little bit tougher, more okay. So it was already hard to spot them, but now given the circumstances of how our life is unfolding right now sociologically, it's even more difficult. To spot them because they're so focused on spotting different types of people and I won't go into that with too much detail right now. So this is really for you to decide. Indoctrination is someone teaching you what to think without you going through your own process of critical thinking. This needs to be through your exploration. What are the long-term effects of the position we find ourselves in and do we think this is in the best interest of humanity? These are all questions that I ask myself daily, and many people that come through break have often been pulled into and co-opted in this agenda without really stopping and pausing to think about it. And it's my belief that a lot of the way this agenda works socially is to use your good heart and your good nature and your desire to help people and be empathic against you. It weaponizes it. So this is certainly not to tell you how it is. This is to ask a question that I encourage you to spend some more time digging into. Is what we're doing right now ultimately in the best interest of humanity at large? So let's take a look at some questions that I encourage you to leave yourself with as you are going down this rabbit hole. What are some broad-reaching cultural effects of this problem? Do we feel like society has gotten closer and more united or have we become more divided? Are we more empathetic to each other or do we only care about certain groups or certain labels? If you're not part of one of these groups that everyone tells you you should feel empathetic toward, are you just getting basically left behind or forgotten or in some cases ostracized? How might this shape our next generation? Is that something that you actually want to sign up for? Is that something that you are teaching your kids daily how to oppose? And how does it impact their emotional intelligence? One could argue that life and society is always happening on a pendulum swing of sorts. So where perhaps we've gone from pendulum swing in the early 1900s through to the civil rights era of having no emotional intelligence, we've now, I believe, swung to this other side of pretending that this is emotionally intelligent and empathetic. But again, we've swung ourselves past the balance point. We're not actually trying to understand and empathize with the individual. We're now trying to 
elevate victimhood culture and we're trying to elevate all these labels and in fact get people leaning into their mental health diagnoses and their mental health issues to move into some sort of preferred group or to get away with things that they really shouldn't be able to get away with. This is not emotionally intelligent. This is gaslighting. And this type of gaslighting is already affecting younger generations. I work with students roughly 13 to 19, and their experience in these kids that I have, most of them were doing relatively fine until COVID hit and lockdowns happened. Go back and imagine that lockdowns happened to you when you were, I don't know, sophomore, junior year. Imagine your family dysfunction and then being like, you know what? Now you can't hang out with friends and you have to hang out with your dysfunctional family every day. Now the dad that used to go to work is going to work from home and you are locked down. You can't go anywhere. What if you had really strict parents and your only outlet to have any sort of experience in the outside world was school and that got shut down for you? That's what a lot of the kids I deal with, that's what their experience was. So what we're looking at here is this victimhood culture was already on the rise. Now we've got cancel culture happening. We've got the whole transgender movement and non-binary movement where I'm telling you, you might not want to believe it, but almost all of the kids that I have, I'd say a genuine 99.9% .9 of them, and I get to actually sit there and interview them back and forth and have all of my notes documented. Every single one of them at some point has questioned their gender identity, not because they actually question it, but because they are genuinely being primed with it at school and because their peers are going through it and certain peer groups are elevating it in a way just like maybe in your school there would have been like the jocks and the drama kids. Now there are, and I've even had this conversation with my um, stepdaughters from my previous relationship, most of the kids at their school identify as non-binary. Those aren't normal trajectories. Those aren't normal numbers. And I'm not saying that those types of, of labels or experiences don't exist. They do exist and have always historically existed. What the difference is, is that this is no longer a natural growth curve or a natural deviation spiral. This is something that went like doot, 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 right? That's not natural. That's something that is influenced from the outside. So what we see here is, again, using this example, if we're talking about victimhood culture and people leaning into mental health diagnoses, and then we're also showing literally like across every single platform that somehow being part of this LGBTQ plus group is now giving you access to one of these groups where people are supposed to, you know, go out of their way to meet your needs, all these things you're able to essentially get access to areas of life right now that you wouldn't if you were just a regular cisgendered kid. So I've seen this firsthand and this doesn't in any way mean that I'm not empathetic to and in support of somebody experiencing true gender dysphoria because I work with people that absolutely have experienced true gender dysphoria from a young age that is not socially primed. It's a very real thing and it has always existed in our society. These two things seem to be treated very differently. That's like comparing an apple to a pineapple. They both have apple in them, but they're nothing alike. We are treading in deep water that I don't believe society can withstand. And we need to be really mindful of these processes that we've looked at here. If we keep letting this happen, who actually gets impacted? All kids? Um, specifically kids that are actually experiencing traumas at home and need help. Right now, I'm telling you, I've watched it happen. If a white cisgendered kid at school is having these issues, a teacher or caregiver that would have been trained to spot them and call CPS is no longer able to do that because they're distracted with all these other issues. So it's not to say that one issue is more important than the other, but we are putting ourselves in a dangerous position for kids that are in need of help to get completely overlooked and to fall by the wayside. And I don't believe that any human being deserves that regardless of their sexual orientation, the color of their skin, everyone that needs help should get help. 
And we also need to teach society how not to cry wolf. Like, when do you actually need help? I truly believe our society right now, the way we are trending, most kids wouldn't know when they are actually being victimized because their entire concept of being victimized would be manipulated. So a good way to look at this is if somebody grew up off grid in a family that never had any interaction with the outside world and this color, right, this is black, they were taught that this is white. If they then went to college, they would always call this white and they would really believe that. They would pass a lie detector test. This would always be white to them. We are doing that to our younger generations. We are teaching them that something that is ultimately victimization and oppression, it, it's not real. That's not actually what true victimization and oppression is. So we're altering the way that they see and label reality. And this is gaslighting. So we need to be very mindful of helping our kids at home if you have kids unwind this and also really ask ourselves some deeper questions about why this is happening, how to see it in the outside world. Because once you see this trend, it's hard to unsee it. Again, if you're looking at things through the lens of input output, once you know all the inputs, it's kind of just math. You're like, oh, well, I kind of know what this output's going to be. And then guess what? That's the output. And then our society will quickly find a way to come up with a study to try to prove that this output is something that's always existed when you can certainly go do the digging and see that that's not the case at all. So I want to leave you on a good note, which is we go into this much more in depth in toxic relationships and gaslighting. And I think the big takeaway here is instead of deciding that somebody is this label, somebody's a narcissist, Take a beat and try from a break perspective to see it from an alternate perspective. See how you might be mislabeling it, how you've contributed to some of the toxicity they're experiencing in your relationship. And go back and whether you perceive that you're the victim, right, at which point you would ask yourself these questions or you have been told that people think you're a narcissist. These are some of the things that are probably producing the evidence that's making somebody be able to latch on to that. So, I believe from a break perspective, these are all protective mechanisms. If you can become aware of them, you can change them. And then we can change the way our relationships are happening. So I encourage you to not take this from a wah, wah, wah perspective and instead to see that there's actually so much good that can come of this. And there's so much we can change, but we have to change the way we're approaching it if we want something to change. And right now, the way things are trending, we are doubling down rather than leveling up. So I hope that you run through this and ask yourself some of these questions and come to your own conclusions. Don't just align with my conclusion. It's perfectly fine if we disagree. I would always love to discuss it with you no matter what. I'll talk to you all soon. Thanks for checking out this week's episode of The Modern Good. To find out more about Break Method, head to breakmethod.com and to check out my workshops and public speaking schedule, busygold.com. I'll see you next week.